0: Good afternoon, and welcome to today's webinar. My name is Michael Puckett from the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, and I'll be your host today. Uh, we're excited to present a continuation of our series on energy efficiency financing, uh, financing energy improvements on utility bills. This series has been developed in partnership with the State Energy Efficiency Action, or SE Action Network, Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, and the Yale Center for Business and the Environment's Clean Energy Finance Forum. Uh, Presenting today's webinar, we have Mark Zimring from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, uh, who's the lead author of the C Action Report on on on-bill financing. Today's presentation is being brought to you by the team at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment's Blueprint for Efficiency, which is in its fifth year of providing public webinars, emphasizing the latest trends and opportunities for energy efficiency. Our goal is to make this series as interactive as possible, Uh, so we'll have a number of uh, polls throughout the presentation um, we encourage you to, um, to participate in those polls. Uh, we'll also allow plenty of time at the end for a question and answer, uh, so please type any questions you might have into the GoToMeeting chat window. Each presentation is recorded and available through the Yale Center for Business and the Environment's website and the Blueprint for Efficiency iTunes U page. A link to download the slides from today's presentation uh, has also been posted on the chat window. Uh, now, before Mark begins his presentation, I have the pleasure of introducing Bruce Schlein, director of corporate sustainability at Citi, and co-chair of the C Action Financing Solutions Working Group, to provide an overview of the work C Action is doing around the country to encourage investment in energy efficiency. Uh, are you there, Mark? Uh, sorry, <laughs> are you there, Bruce?
1: <laughs> I am. I am. Hi, and, and thank you. Thanks for the introduction. And uh, I also want to thank the, the L Center for Business and and the Environment for <coughs> hosting these webinars and um, and recognize the uh, the five years. I didn't realize it was five years. The five years that um, that you've been focused on this particular area. So um, glad all of you can join us today. Um, you're you're going to hear from um, a, uh, from Mark shortly who. Um, is going to uh, talk through today's topic and has uh, a lot of experience in the space. Uh, I co-chair um, this working group, this Action Financial Solutions Working Group, together with Brian Garcia, uh, now president of the Connecticut Green Bank, which they recently renamed. It was Sophia, the Clean Energy Finance and Investment Authority, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, and I think. Um, Brian is uh, excited to to have the renaming and um, I know would have uh, appreciated uh, joining this webinar but had another commitment today. Um, Just going now to uh, the overview slide of the Sea Action Network. Um, You can see uh, it's uh, a network of uh, about a couple hundred leaders and professionals. Um, led by state and local policymakers that are working to bring energy efficiency solutions to scale and the C Action Network is designed to provide a platform and a venue for sharing of best practices and support um, on the policy making and, and program decision making for various actors working in this space, utility regulators, legislators, air and energy office directors and others. And we are uh, fortunate uh, to have um, this uh, network facilitated by the Department of Energy and EPA. For those of you who might be familiar with the National Action Plan for Energy Efficiency, C-Action is a successor to that body. Uh, Moving now to 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 the next page that outlines the priority solutions and actions that this working group is uh, currently engaged on. I'm not going to walk through all of this, but uh, we'll point out that um, the highlighted pillar of the five pillars there, the support testing and efficacy of financing tools and capital sources, and uh, and the solution area beneath it is uh, where we are uh, focused in today's webinar. And um, let me thank Yale again and Mark for um, for um, uh, presenting today's
2: uh, topic. And I'll turn it over to Mark. Thank you. It's great. Thanks very much, Bruce. And, and thanks for for all the support that uh, that that you've uh, given in, in leading the, the working group over the the last year or so. Um, So as as Bruce alluded to, uh, this is Mark Zimmering. This is is part of a broader series of webcasts that Yale, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and and the C-Action Financing Solutions Working Group are partnering on. Um, For those that missed some of the earlier sessions and that are looking for a solid grounding in in why policymakers and program administrators uh, and investors are paying so much attention to EE financing, uh, or efficiency financing. Uh, the miracles of modern technology now allow you to go back in time uh, and, and view some of these earlier webcasts. You can access access them uh, at the link uh, at the bottom of the slide. Next slide. Okay, so on to today's topic. This is the first of two webcasts that we'll be conducting to highlight the results of a nearly year-long research effort into financing energy improvements on customer utility bills. So the first one is today, Um, you'll just have me, uh, and then we'll have another one next week on Wednesday on the 11th, Uh, where we'll dive in deeply uh, and have a number of case studies and and administrators uh, presenting on lessons learned. Um, In this first webcast, next slide. Uh, In this first webcast, webcast, we'll we'll briefly revisit some foundational information on why folks are are paying so much attention to efficiency financing uh, and to on bill specifically. We'll then define on-bill and, and describe why this specific tool is, is um, being viewed as some uh, by some as a, as a game changer. We'll discuss what motivated our research, um, our objectives for the research and, and our methods, um, before jumping into the real meat and potatoes of today's session, um, which is a characterization of the existing on program landscape um, and, and a dive into the four key program design considerations around which our report is organized. Uh, And again, in the second webcast on July 11th, we'll dive deeper into these program design considerations and include a bunch of case studies. Um, We should have plenty of time at the close of today's presentation uh, for a question and answer, so so please feel free to to kind of um, share thoughts and and, and, uh, questions. Next slide. Okay, so background. We'll, we'll walk through this quickly again. This has been the subject of other webcasts, but it's worth revisiting. Um, why run an efficiency financing program? What, what, what problem are we are, are we trying to solve with these things? Um, at the most foundational level, efficiency improvements often have large upfront costs, and financing can help customers to overcome these costs by spacing out their payment for efficiency improvements, often in a way that aligns with their realization of energy savings. Um, in recent years, financing has been gaining increasing attention across the country. Um, and this increasing focus is in no small part due to the practical reality that states and utility regulators have been setting ambitious goals for achieving robust energy savings uh, in existing buildings. And they're looking um, for new opportunities to deliver greater leverage on limited pools of public and utility ratepayer capital than traditional programmatic strategies like rebates have been able to achieve. Um, and this all sounds great um, at, at driving greater leverage to financing um, but and, and this is a big but in order for financing programs to deliver uh, on this leverage they need to drive customer adoption of efficiency and in order to drive adoption um, we need to convince ourselves that today customers are not investing in efficiency because either they lack access to capital um, altogether um, or they lack access to sufficiently attractive financing products um, to to undertake uh, these efficiency improvements. Um, in the next slide, I'll cover a, a, a couple key rationales for for focusing on kind of programmatic financing, and then uh, and then on bill specifically. Next slide. OK, so so um, again, in a previous webinar, we, we covered four broad rationales um, for why run an efficiency financing program. And I would, I would divide these into two broad categories. Um, the first is to deliver more attractive or accessible financial products. Um, and the second is that there's, there's some foundational work necessary to, to, to kind of drive market organization, investment market organization, um, in order to deliver large pools of low cost and accessible capital. Um, it's important to acknowledge that a range of tools, including interest rate buy downs, rebates, and financial products like OnBill, may be effective in achieving some or all these benefits. Um, the red arrows on this slide uh, indicate why OnBill is achieving so much attention, um, which is to say that to the extent that customers repay financing on their utility bills at higher rates than they re- repay financing not repaid on the utility bill, it may warrant expanding customer access to capital beyond that which standard financial products do. Um, this strong performance or low default rates may also reduce the interest rate or extend the loan term of on-bill products, uh, again, potentially driving more attractive products to customers and, and moving them towards action on efficiency. Um, in addition, some unique properties of on-bill um, may help to overcome more than just the upfront cost barrier, uh, helping to resolve. Resolve issues such as split incentives between owners and tenants, helping to survive ownership or tenancy changes and, and overcome uh, barriers of long project paybacks, particularly when we're talking about deep energy improvements, um, or garnering off-balance sheet treatment um, for those that already have access to traditional financial products but but uh, need something else to, to motivate them to move. Um, if some of that was unfamiliar, don't worry; it's covered in depth in the report, and and we'll touch on it today, but cover it more comprehensively. Uh, On the second webinar next slide okay so on to the main event Um, what is on bill financing Um, at at the most basic level on bill programs simply involve repaying financing for energy improvements on the consumers utility bill there are many many possible program structures Um, we see lots and lots of variation when we look across the u.s. and abroad in program design um, and these program structures and the variance uh, across them ultimately reflect different policymaker goals um, and, and, and objectives. Um, but all are united by this basic feature, which is that uh, consumers are repaying uh, interest and in principal on, on, uh, on these financial products on their utility bills. Um, and when we look across these programs, we find that four key program design features um, drive this program diversity. Uh, so the first is how is the product structured? Um, What are the consequences if you don't pay? Um, Where does the money come from? Is this public money? Is this utility money? Uh, Is this private investor money? Who's eligible? Uh, Residential customers? Non-residential customers? Um, How do we how do we underwrite uh, these products? And then once you once you've been approved, um, what are you allowed to finance? Efficiency? Renewables? um, All the above? and, and the report is, is organized around um, those four key program design features. We'll touch more on them in a bit, and again on the 11th dive, dive into to more detail on some of the key considerations around these designs. Next slide. So before we get to the numbers, um, I think it's worth talking about why folks, um, how, how objectives have shifted uh, through time in terms of running an on-bill program. So we've seen that some on-bill programs have been around for decades, and that administrator and policymaker objectives um, have shifted as perceived market needs have shifted so for example when the first generation of on bill programs was launched uh, in the late 70s and early 80s um, interest rates were much higher than they are today so mortgage rates uh, during that period reached as high as the upper teens before settling into the 7 the to 10 percent range uh, throughout the 90s and given these high interest rates um, affordability was really top of mind. Affordability of efficiency improvements was top of mind for a lot of policymakers, uh, and this was a key target for the first generation of on-bill programs. Um, in recent years, as interest rates uh, have come down and remain low, we've also seen that capital access has been demonstrably restricted, as the financial crisis drove lenders to tighten underwriting standards and consumers faced historical uh, financial challenges. So, kind of a perfect storm here. And in this context, we've seen some on-bill programs launched to expand access to capital among traditionally underserved populations like single-family, middle-income households, or or small businesses. Um, Some recently launched programs also include specific provisions I referenced earlier targeting a broader range of barriers to consumer efficiency adoption than just the upfront costs. So thinking about split incentives, for example. Um, In this context, consumers that already have access to low-cost Conventional loan products may be driven to adopt efficiency because on-bill programs may be more attractive. Um, And then finally, uh, increased focus on on on-bill is part of a broader trend among policymakers and administrators um, seeking to tap into private capital to stretch the impact of limited program funds further. Um, We see uh, in recent years a shift um, in in program funding from largely public funding or ratepayer funding um, to, to seeking to rely. Uh, more on private capital. Um, so with that, let's pause for, um, for our first poll.
0: Okay, thanks, Mark. Uh, so we have our first poll today, um, which should be up uh, on everyone's screens. The question is, what is the most important objective in running an on-bill program? Uh, is it affordability, access to capital, uh, to drive demand, or to increase leverage? And we'll just pause for a few seconds while, uh, while we get enough votes. OK. So we have the results. Uh, it looks like driving demand is seen as the, uh, the number one uh, most important objective, followed by access to capital uh, with affordability and then increased leverage uh, trailing.
2: Great. Interesting results. Um,
0: can, we, uh, can we
2: jump to the next slide, please? Okay. Um, great. So on to the report here. So we see an increasing interest in on bill programs across the country. I think you know, that's largely reflected by the, the large turnout in some sense uh, today on, on the webcast. Um, and we felt that it was important to review existing programs to provide context and insights to new programs. Um, Sharing lessons learned from, from the experience of existing on-bill programs is particularly important for on-bill where regulatory or legislative action is often necessary to launch these programs. Um, and that this action is required often leads to mock-in of program design features. So it's really important that decision makers understand the range of program design choices available to them and the potential trade-offs among them as they go into the program design process because tweaking these programs um, can be quite difficult through time so to do this we reviewed previous on studies and relevant literature um, and we conducted what we think is the most thorough data collection effort on US and international on programs to date so we collected data from 30 programs and completed detailed case studies on 13 of them um, these case studies are available as a standalone file that can be downloaded from the CAction website. And, and you can see in your chat window that we've shared the link for that. Uh, we'll also share that link again
0: uh, at the end of the presentation.
2: Okay, one more quiz, poll.
0: All right, uh, okay, number two. Um, question this time is how much on-bill activity do you think has occurred across the 30 programs uh, we collected data for in this report? Uh, option one is 10 to a hundred million dollars. Option two is a hundred to 500 million. Option three is 500 million to a billion. And option four is 1 billion to $2 billion. Okay. The results are in, uh, it looks like most people think that, uh, we're looking at a hundred to $500 million. So, uh, what what was the actual.
2: Yeah, well, let's dive right into the next slide. I mean, I, I think when we went into this report, um, I, I largely expected to find the same thing, um, which, was, which was kind of uh, low hundreds to, to kind of mid-hundreds of millions of dollars of, of financing. Um, and what we actually found was that as of January 2014, programs were operating in at least 25 states, some for over 30 years that these programs are operating across um, both wide geographies and a real diversity of utility and program administration models. So we see these programs operating uh, in in rural co-ops, with public utilities, and and with investor on utilities. Um, And at the highest level, there's been a heck of a lot of activity. Across the 30 programs, we studied over $1.8 billion of financing has been delivered through on-built to over 200,000 participants. Some of these programs have been around for for multiple decades, but really big numbers for a tool that is widely viewed as as, as being in its infancy. So in the next several slides, I'm going to share some key findings from the report. Um, Number of programs by sector, breakdown of this volume uh, by sector, default rates, age of these programs, uh, and then a few highlights from those that have done particularly large amounts of volume. Next slide. Okay, so for ease of presentation, and, and because the importance of specific program design elements really differs across consumer classes, um, we segment the 30 programs into those serving primarily residential, uh, and, and residential we define as single and multifamily consumers, and those, those serving primarily non-residential consumers, so commercial, industrial, and institutional. Um, roughly three quarters, so 22 of the 30 on-built programs included in this report, are primarily focused on residential programs residential customers nine of those twenty-two residential programs are targeted only at single-family homeowners um, and residential tenants are eligible to participate in seven of those uh, 22 programs Uh, when we look to the non-residential sector uh, there are eight programs um, targeted targeting these customers Um, two of the eight non-residential programs are targeted exclusively at at hard-to-reach small business markets Uh, While the other six are are offered to a broader range of non-residential consumers, so large commercial, industrial, ag, and and institutional. Next slide, please. Great. Um, So 27 programs reported data for this report, um, and and, uh, sorry, loan volume data. And and the reason that it's just 27 is that three were in the process of launching when we wrote the report. Um, So let's unpack this information a bit. While 73% of programs overall, 22 programs, were were residential, and uh, more than three-quarters of participants were residential, um, only 59% of of dollars of financing went to the residential sector. And and this makes sense uh, at a fundamental level as non-residential customer loads, uh, efficiency project sizes, and loans tend to be uh, substantially larger. In fact, we found that the average non-residential loan was almost three times as large as the average residential love. Next slide. Okay. Oh, we gave it. We gave it away. But uh, let, no, I don't think. Let, <laughs> let's let's pause for another poll. <laughs> yeah,
0: for those who are looking uh, very closely, we gave away the results here. But uh, we have the next uh, the next poll, which is looking at default rates. Um, so, estimate the median lifetime default rate uh, residential on bill programs have experienced so far. So uh, do you think it's between 0 and 0.5%? Uh, sorry, I actually have to launch the ball. There we go. Do you think it's between 0 and 0.5%? Between 0.5 and 1%? Between 1 and 2% or between 2 and 5%? Let's see what the audience thinks. Okay, so there's a pretty, uh, the consensus seems to be between 0. 0.5 and 1%, but uh, there's sort of an even split between uh, 0 to 0. 0.5 and 1
2: to 2%. Yeah, great. Um, well, I, I'm impressed that, that folks are so accurate on this one. Um, the, the second big finding in a sense from the report is that um, default rates and, and, and loss rates have been quite low. Um, So we, again, divide these rates by customer class as credit quality um, is really based on fundamentally different characteristics. And while many caveats to this data are important, and we describe those caveats at at length in the report, um, for example, that a large number of residential programs have been launched in recent years and have not been through uh, a full kind of financial or program cycle, um, the numbers are quite promising. With with those caveats behind us of the 22 programs that reported default rates, um, and remember this is across almost $2 billion of financing, and in some cases from programs that have been operating for decades and and, and thus have weathered multiple financial cycles, um, we're talking about less than 1% default rates, uh, median uh, default rates, and and in some cases uh, less than one-tenth of 1% for the residential sector. Even 3%, so I look to the high side of of both of these, um, is really exceptionally low when we compare it to, for example, loss rates on on consumer loan products, which often range from mid-single digits to low-double digits. Uh, And and those consumer loan products in the residential sector often use the finance uh, efficiency improvements. Um, And I think the takeaway here is that if, in fact, to the earlier point that I made, um, these default and loss rates hold through time as these programs gain experience, Um, They may be a a really powerful set of tools um, for delivering, over the long run, uh, low-cost accessible uh, access to to capital. Next slide. Um, So we'll be discussing a bunch of program design features later, and, and again, with more focus next week. But one key takeaway from the report is that across all the choices that administrators have at their disposal, default rates have really been quite consistently low. Um, Now, there are other reasons that program administrators may want to carefully consider design choices uh, beyond just whether they uh, deliver low default rates. So, for example, if you're seeking private capital to fund programs or you're really focusing on driving consumer adoption, um, your choices on how the program's underwritten or what types of measures participants can finance will likely really matter. Um, But, again, the overall analysis is quite promising from the perspective of low default rates. Um, next slide, please. Okay, so across the operating programs included in this report, the average age is five years, and this speaks to something that I was alluding to earlier with programs not having been through a full financial or program cycle. Now, while Tennessee Valley Authority offered one of the nation's earliest on-bill programs in the late 70s, non-residential programs tend to have significantly longer operating histories than their residential counterparts. So, in fact, Almost three-quarters of residential on-bill programs in our sample have been started in the last four years, while three-quarters of non-residential programs were implemented more than four years ago. So a real shift in, in trends towards residential uh, in, in recent years. Um, when we look at market penetration rates for these on-bill programs, they tend to be quite low. Um, so 60% of the residential on-bill programs uh, in the report have market penetration rates of less than 1% Over their lifetime program operating period. Um, The median cumulative market penetration for these programs, uh, for those programs started in the residential space, started in the last five years, uh, is less than 1%. But in some sense, the story may be slightly more positive, which is to say that in the residential space, the two longest running programs have served um, about 12 to 15% of their target market, and those programs that have been around for more than five years averaged uh, uh, just over 5%. Um, Given the longer operating histories, non-residential programs have tended to to reach uh, more customers uh, than than, uh, residential programs, and we see that on the high end for these non-residential programs, uh, in Connecticut, uh, two utilities have have reached almost 30 percent of their eligible small business market over a decade. So to put this all in context, um, on Bill's capacity to increase the rate of consumer adoption of efficiency remains uncertain this kind of 1% per year market penetration that that we generally see in on-bill programs outside of the outliers um, is is about in line with standard efficiency programs. Um, Now, we also see that the leaders have been quite successful. um, And it's unclear whether it's the financing itself or other program design features in these leading programs. Um, But what is clear is that the young age of many programs um, makes strong conclusions about the long-term efficacy of on-bill in driving increased customer adoption of efficiency. Um, challenging and there's and there's lots still to be learned. Next slide. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things about the data set and, and another reason strong conclusions are challenging is that um, we found that historic on-bill activity has been heavily concentrated uh, in just a few programs. So approximately 90% of historic program volume by dollars and number of participants has been concentrated uh, in, in just the, the five programs that you see on your, your screen. Um, the big takeaway um, in terms of what's driven success of these programs is, is that um, they've done one of three things so uh, the first is that they've they've in some cases programs have focused on market transformation in a single technology so here I'm referring to the Tennessee Valley Authority and their heat pump focus with on or at least historically they've recent recently kind of expanded eligible measures to, to think about um, a broader set of efficiency uh, measures but but for TVA, you know, effectively a combination of utilities motivated to grow their electric loads and a mature contractor work- workforce have effectively sold uh, these appliances at high rates using on-bill financing uh, throughout their, their territory. Um, the second is that um, some programs have effectively allowed consumers to finance um, almost anything energy-related. So anything, anything um, that, that delivers um, some level of efficiency savings Um, including single measures so really important things so Manitoba Hydro for example in in Canada where where utility rates are quite low um, there'll be a there'll be be a case study in next week's webcast Um, over 90 percent of consumer activity for that program has been for single measures such as windows and doors and then I think the third bucket of what's driven success is um, that programs that have restricted what you can finance um, to to kind of multi-measure efficiency Uh, improvements, have generally provided large financial incentives in the form of rebates to complement the provision of attractive on-bill financing. So in Connecticut, for example, they offer 0% financing and rebates that have averaged about a third of project costs. Next slide. So, not surprisingly, when you look at this table, all of these leading programs over, have over a decade of operating history, and several have over 20 years. Um, we see a relatively even split between residential and, and non residential. And when we look at 2012 volume, we see that, that um, there have been a heck of a lot of on-bill programs launched in recent years, and that those programs are starting to increase their volume. So, while these five programs are responsible for 90% of historic volume, in 2012 they accounted for uh, about sixty percent, so other programs are starting to ramp up. Um, for my earlier comment, one thing to note in the default rate for these programs is that they've all they all weathered the financial crisis they've all been um, through some some difficult um, financial times and all have have delivered pretty consistently low default rates. So I would focus here less on the differences between default rates among these programs and more on the reality that uh, across all of them, the default rates Lifetime default rates were, were 3% or lower. Um, just a, a quick asterisk here, which is that for those wondering about um, the low Alliant Energy 2012 number, um, that program was wound down and finally shuttered at the year-end year 2013 after over 25 years. Um, and Alliance' experience is really fascinating. And, and we captured it in a case study that highlights how important specific program design features are to program participation. OK, next slide. So with that broad overview of the on-bill market complete, um, we'll spend the next few minutes ahead of the Q&A providing um, an overview of the key program design considerations that we highlight in the report. So um, how is the product structured, disconnection and meter attachment, um, capital sources, where does the money come from, customer creditworthiness, how are we qualifying for customers for this, um, and then eligible measures. What, What can customers do once they've been qualified? Um, and again, we'll cover this in more depth next week, but I wanted to provide a foundational overview today uh, in case you can't make it next week. Next slide. Okay, so product structure. Um, there are really two defining features that, that separate the range of programs, uh program structures that we've seen. Um, the first, as I alluded to, is, is, is the question of, is there a threat of disconnection? So people like to keep the lights on, and, and some believe that the threat of service termination for financing non-payment will drive over the long run very low default rates in line with utility non-payment um, among both residential and non-residential customers. And then the second big question is, um, is this debt of the, the person or, or property or is this structured as, as what we call a tariff? And I'll um, touch briefly on that uh, in a moment. Now, I know we have a diverse audience today, so so the challenge is to get the, right, the depth right. So if any of these terms are unfamiliar, uh, we do go into really deep depth um, in the report and I would encourage you to review the relevant sections uh, we also include contact info at the end so, so feel free to, to follow up with questions so the first structure is is what we call line item billing and here there is no threat of utility service termination uh, for non-payment um, and there's no meter attachment So this is debt of, of a person or, or property and here the utility bill is simply used as a tool for participating consumers to make repayment of financing. So in the event that, that a participant fails to make principal and interest payments, financing charges are, are typically either written off or removed from the utility bill and financial institutions of the utility are free to seek recourse unrelated to participants' utility service. So if, if this was a mortgage that you were repay on the utility bill, uh, they could seek to foreclose on, on, on your home. Um, the second structure is, is um, the on-bill loan or, or lease structure with disconnection. So here, um, again, this is debt of, of a, a person or property, but disconnection is allowed. Um, and on-bill loans with disconnection rights um, can be used for a range of financial products. So again, unsecured loans, mortgages, leases. Um, and the threat of utility service termination may act, we think, as an inducement for the consumer to repay the loan. Uh, in the event that a participating customer fails to make financial payments, utilities typically use a normal collection pro- protocol for delinquency, which may ultimately result in service termination. So that's an important point, which is to say that standard consumer protections typically are included in these programs. And then the third structure, the envelope tariff, um, is really a novel structure, um, whereby instead of this being a loan, um, it is effectively considered a a critical part of your utility service so it's undifferentiated from any other line item on your utility bill so here disconnection is allowed uh, and it's, the debt is attached or the, the the financial product is attached to the to the meter um, and the significance of this we, you know we don't have the time today to go into the significance of this but but it has the potential um, to get at some of the balance sheet treatment uh, the automatic transferability issues that affect uh, customer willingness to invest in long project payment projects And a few other benefits. So, of the 30 programs in this report, 10 offer line item billing, 13 offer on bill loans with disconnection, and seven offer on bill tariffs. Um, So, of the 23 programs that offer either line item billing or on bill loans, um, they've done 99% of of, uh, on bill financing by dollar amount. Now. This is um, somewhat misleading in the sense that uh, on-bill tariffs are a relatively new innovation, um, and we expect um, programs focus on this structure to expand in the coming years. Next slide.
0: Okay, so it's time for another poll. Um, so, the question here is: Of those three approaches that um, that Mark just outlined, which approach to product structure is most able to overcome barriers to energy efficiency finance? Um, Option one is line item billing option two is loan for loan with disconnection and option three is on bill tariff. Okay. So it seems like on bill tariff seems to be leading the way, um, followed by line item billing and then loan with disconnection, uh, coming in last.
2: Yeah, and I think that reflects the the, um, current energy around this tariff structure. We raise a bunch of um, questions and issues for consideration in the report that I would really encourage folks to focus on, um, which is to say that tariffs have lots of promise, um, are really unproven in a sense, and that these programs are new, Um, and there are a bunch of um, both kind of um, legal and, and accounting and, and um, other considerations that, that program administrators and policymakers and financial institutions um, should really kind of dig into uh, in, in assessing the long-term uh, value of that structure. But quite promising, and, and I think that's reflected in the uh, the energy behind it. Um, great. So the, the second key consideration here is where does the money come from? Um, and we divide programs into, and this is using market nomenclature. Um, on-bill financing, which is funded with utility capital, ratepayer capital, or public capital, such as taxpayer funds or greenhouse gas credit trading proceeds. Um, and that capital is used to fund uh, on-bill financial products. Uh, and then into an on-bill repayment, so on-bill financing versus on-bill repayment. And on-bill repayment is used uh, for non-utility investor capital, uh, or, or sorry, to label programs that are funded with non-utility investor capital. Um, We acknowledge that utility capital is a form of private capital uh, and may be uh, a scalable approach to to delivering large pools of capital uh, for these programs, Um, but we rely on existing market terminology here for the report. So the 30 programs, two-thirds of them are OBF, so they're financed with either public, uh, utility, or rate capital, and over 60% of program volume by dollars has been through these initiatives. So while there's lots of attention to OVR right now, and an increasing number of programs are turning to on-bill repayment, um, the, the majority of historic volume and the majority of programs operating today are on-bill financing. So for on-bill repayment, there are multiple pathways to using private capital. Um, and we, again, go into this in depth, and we'll touch on it in, in some more detail next week, but they divide, we divide them generally into three categories. So um, there are those through which program administrators fund on-bill financial products up front. And then resell them to investors, and we call this the warehousing model. There are those through which program administrators raise private capital upfront from investors and then use that capital to fund on-built products. And we call that the upfront capital raise model. Um, and then there's this third model, which is garnering again real attention uh, across the country, which is the open market model, through which individual financial institutions or investors deliver capital directly to program participants. Um, to date, almost all on-bill repayment volume uh, has been through either the warehouse. Uh, sorry, has, has been through the warehouse model. So, 99% of on-bill repayment volume has been through the warehouse model. Um, and program administrators using this model have typically are, uh, offered quite large credit enhancements in the form of guarantees. Um, I think the positive story around that is that the uh, default rates or loss rates have been low enough that, that administrators. Administrators have generally uh, been able to, to manage that significant credit enhancement and use it to, to um, or the risk of that credit enhancement and use it to deliver really large pools of attractive capital. Um, but in some cases, uh, particularly with the open market model, uh, folks are looking to, to reduce that credit enhancement. Um, each of these structures really presents different types of risk and opportunity for administrators, um, and, and we'll go, we go into detail on those uh, in the main report. Next slide. Okay, so next um, is kind of options for assessing customer creditworthiness. So program administrators for on-bill programs and and their financial institution partners use a range of criteria um, to assess the creditworthiness of applicants for a financial product. So we see everything from uh, traditional underwriting standards, and on this slide you see um, a set of single-family residential uh, metrics. Um, where, so where where they're really relying on metrics that are used for underwriting other types of financial products to expanded underwriting standards where the administrator starts with a set of traditional metrics but relaxes the, the minimum standards for applicant approval. Um, and the goal there is to approve, responsibly approve, more customers for financing. Um, the third is alternative underwriting standards. So basically throwing out Uh, minimum credit scores and maximum debt-to-income ratios and relying on something else altogether. Um, and here typically with on bill programs we see it uh, is we see programs relying on a strong history of utility bill repayment Um, and then a fourth or or hybrid set of underwriting standards which is that um, administrators effectively relax uh, standard underwriting standards um, and then use a secondary or alternative set of standards to complement them so here you can imagine a 600 credit score um, and then strong history of utility bill repayment. And again, here, the goal of, of all of these sets of standards is to balance this need to responsibly uh, underwrite, right? So to, to deliver capital to a set of customers that are able and willing to repay it, while also kind of recognizing that the, that repaying financing on the utility bill uh, may lead to uh, lower default rates than, than um, repaying uh, financing off the utility bill. So of the 28 programs that reported underwriting criteria for this report, only one program relies exclusively on, on traditional underwriting standards. Uh, and that program rejects a significantly higher number of applicants than, than the other programs. Um, three programs rely on expanded underwriting, nine deploy uh, hybrid underwriting criteria, and 15. So more than half of the programs that reported uh, data for to this, to to this section of the report Use alternative underwriting criteria. Again, this is really typically utility bill repayment history. Now, when we weight um, that by program loan volume, we actually see that programs using hybrid underwriting account for about half of all uh, on bill program volume, followed by programs that rely on expanded, uh, with those using alternative accounting for just 20% of of on bill volume. So, um, part of that is that a lot of the newly launched programs that we see are relying. Uh, on, on alternative underwriting standards, and, and those programs are still really in a ramp-up phase. Next slide. Okay. And the last kind of key consideration here at the is, is the choice of eligible measures. So what are participants allowed to finance? And this really requires balancing the objectives of enabling or driving demand for cost-effective energy efficiency and, and renewable energy. Um, with a range of other program design or policy goals such as market transformation and job creation. Um, We highlight three key considerations. So the first is types of measures. Is it just efficiency? Is it efficiency in renewables? Um, Do you enable customers to finance non-energy improvements um, that that may be critical to the healthy functioning um, of energy efficiency improvements? What we find is that 12 of the 30 on-bill programs included in the report limited eligibility to just efficiency programs, 11 programs then allow renewable energy uh, technologies, and and five, just five allow non-energy measures. And I'm focused on non-energy measures because when we look to small businesses and middle income households, oftentimes uh, allowing consumers to finance those non-energy measures is a critical element to driving adoption. But at the end of the day, those measures themselves don't deliver energy savings, and so um, administrators need to grapple with with the trade-offs between them. Uh, The second major uh, component of of kind of what's eligible is single measures versus comprehensive measures, which is to say that, um, as I referenced before, a number of policymakers and program administrators, particularly those with aggressive energy savings targets, are really focused on um, driving participants to adopt multi-measure comprehensive energy improvements. Uh, that deliver deep energy savings, whereas others permit participants to find single measures, like boiler replacements, to balance energy savings goals with others, such as higher job creation, uh, that might come from higher participation levels that we typically see in single measure programs. Um, Again, most programs that have achieved significant market penetration have permitted single measures, and those that have, have required comprehensive improvements or deep energy savings have often accompanied uh, financing with a significant set of financial incentives and that kind of raises um, some questions about whether how the amount to which uh, financing programs on their own can increase leverage uh, relative to other strategies that program administrators may deploy and then I think the last year is, uh, last issue here is, is bill neutrality or utility bill impacts um, we see some on bill programs requiring that the expected energy savings from energy improvement offset 100% of project costs, sometimes including financing charges. Um, this expectation that energy savings will be at least as large as project costs is known as bill neutrality. And I think at the end of the day, what we see is that um, while we don't have definitive, definitive evidence either way, we see that um, on-bill programs in the study that require bill neutrality have, on average, um, achieved lower historical uh, and market penetration or annual market penetration than, than those that don't um, and that there's uncertainty as, as to whether bill neutrality itself um, acts as a consumer protection or is necessary given strong performance across program attributes in terms of low default rates um, but it can be a powerful tool uh, for allocating limited uh, public monies or or monies um, to projects that are delivering kind of the most bang for the buck um, but again has has uh, a bunch of potential risks around limiting what ultimately can get financed, and, and, and in so doing, limiting program participation. Next slide.
0: It's time for our fifth and final uh, poll. Okay, time for another poll. That's right. Uh, it's a simple one this time. Um, is bu- build neutrality a critical element of on bill program design? Uh, yes or no? Okay, let's see what the audience thinks well, that's a pretty even split actually
2: <laughs> and I think that reflects the the discussion that's happening in the marketplace today we we really try to dedicate um, a fair amount of time in the report to discussing the trade-offs around bill neutrality um, and it's really one of what we think over the long run will be one of the more uh, important considerations for policymakers and administrators and their financial institution partners um, great. So, so uh, we've now been through uh, the four key program design considerations. I think one thing to note is that the, that the, the report is organized around these. Um, so there's a chapter for each. And so while the, the overall report is long, um, you know, it's really easy to kind of dive into to each one of those. So if there's one of these in particular that's interesting, um, know that you don't need to, to kind of go through the entire report. You can really capture um, the key considerations and trade offs in it uh, within individual chapters. Next slide. Okay, so uh, next week there's more to come. Um, I've mentioned it a few times. Um, we, will, we will follow up today's webcast by sharing the link uh, for signing up for this webcast if you haven't already received it. Um, and there we'll really dive in uh, into more detail for the trade-offs between all these program design options and, and really focus on practical experience um, that program administrators have had with, with, in dealing with them. So we've got um, three great presenters next week, folks from NYSERDA, from Pacific Gas and Electric in California, and from Manitoba Hydro. Um, so again, time to follow there, and, and we'll look forward to, to seeing you uh, all again then. Next slide. Great. So, so um, just to re-emphasize that, that while the report itself is long, we've, we've really focused on um, kind of giving you digestible bite-sized pieces, so there is a, a 16-page executive summary. And there are 13 detailed case studies, including one on on the UK's Green Deal. Um, Peter Thompson, who is now with LDL, uh, did quite a bit of work in structuring uh, the Green Deal over in the UK, which is a nationwide on-bill program. Lots of interesting lessons learned for program design over in the States. Um, So so one certainly worth noting. Um, So next slide, and with that, I think we'll turn it to, to questions.
0: Thank you, Mark, for, um, as always, a really interesting and uh, engaging presentation. Um, We have had a ton of really good questions, actually. Uh, So let me just get started uh, with, um, firstly, something that was asked by both Jeff and Tara, who are wondering if you could go into a little more detail on, um, I guess, breakdowns within the residential and non-residential sort of sectors. Um, So within the residential sector, how um, how on-bill financing looks for single homes versus multi-family homes versus condo associations. Uh, and then within the non-residential sector, um, how nonprofits, commercial properties and industrial customers, um, you know, what sort of penetration you're seeing? What sort of strategies you're seeing? Yeah,
2: great. Good questions. Um, so unfortunately, the level of granularity of the data that we collected probably doesn't allow for the, the types of answers that you'd like to see. Um, the vast majority of residential on-bill um, volume has, has been for single-family, which, which here we um, refer to as one in four family households. Um, households, and, and, and we can certainly um, share, share afterwards, if you, if you email us, um, some of the more specific breakdowns. I guess I would say um, one of the kind of takeaways that we have on the non-residential side is that we do have data from programs specifically focused on small business. Um, so two of the programs, and, and they happen to deliver a heck of a lot of volume, um, are really focused on, on um, small business. The Align energy program was quite focused uh, on the industrial sector, although it involved uh, another another kind of a broader set of customers who were eligible for it. Um, so we we have some kind of um, some small sets of, of data that may get you um, kind of a more nuanced view of this. But I think the big takeaway here is that um, look there are limits to the data right this was um, largely done in survey form and I think the really the takeaways that we have are that across all of these customers um, and across all these program designs um, default rates were pretty consistently low and I think I would probably caution against kind of teasing too much out of the data uh, beyond that that general narrative
0: great uh, okay, the next question comes uh, from both Paul and from Patty, who are wondering about the, uh, the default rates uh, for on-bill financing as compared with default rates for uh, utility bills. So whether there's concurrent uh, defaults with the energy bills or you know how those, how those rates differed.
2: Yeah, that, it, that is a fantastic question. Um, I guess I would say, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a great answer, which is to say that um, it is very difficult. Typically, utilities um, hold that information quite closely um, and and consider it to be proprietary information. So it is quite difficult um, for us to get that data. But we have been told anecdotally um, in some of the discussions that we had around case studies um, that, that for at least some utilities, the default rates also reflected kind of loss rates in their broader portfolios. Um, But it's a great question and and one that if we do have uh, utility partners on the phone and and you're willing to kind of share that data, uh, it'd be great to do.
0: All right. Um, The next question comes from Jennifer, who is uh, wondering how sure we are that on-bill financing can address the issue of split incentives, uh, whether this has been proven (laughs) or whether it's still just a theory. Uh,
2: It's a great question. I, I guess I would say um, it's somewhere between proven and theory, which is to say, look, at the end of the day, uh, to, to kind of put a, a policy hat on here in some sense, um, people have to value the energy improvements um, to be willing to pay for them, right? So subsequent tenants or subsequent owners need to value these things. So while on bill may provide a neat tool for for kind of seamlessly transferring The obligation to repay to new customers, uh, to to the new tenant, or to the the new owner, which makes sense because they'll be benefiting from it. Um, If they don't benefit, you know, if they don't, if they don't value those benefits, kind of basic, kind of economic theory would suggest to us that they'll just reduce the amount they're willing to pay for rent, or reduce the amount they're willing to pay for for the property, or just require that the on-bill lien or tariff be cleared. Um, Unfortunately, we we just don't have the data to say with any confidence. Um, whether the tariff or other kind of on-bill structures that include the, the ability to transfer them to new to new tenants or owners um, are really going to be effective I think the limited data that we have suggests that in some cases people these things do transfer in a lot of cases they get clear um, and, and I think the same kind of story is true for another financial tool that, that folks are talking about around split incentives which is property assessed clean energy which is lots of promise still a lot of uncertainty as to the kind of long-term value um, of, of kind of transferability in, in overcoming these barriers and, and questions about whether simply getting these folks to value the improvements um, will be just as powerful a tool as, as kind of enabling the transfer of financing across uh, across tenancy or ownership. But good question.
0: All right, the, uh, the next question um, comes from both Craig and Ken. Um, asking whether you're aware of any city or municipal water utilities that have or are using on-bill financing uh, for energy-related improvements. Uh, sorry, could you ask that
2: one again? I came through a bit fuzzy on my phone.
0: Uh, sure. Uh, the question was whether are there any city or municipal water utilities uh, that are using on-bill financing? Oh,
2: <laughs> good question. There there are. Um, I know of at least one in California, um, and it's, uh, it's in Windsor. Um, there are also a number of programs that enable so energy utility programs that enable consumers to finance water efficiency. So there are some, um, some on bill pro- there are actually a couple in California that I'm aware of. Some, some focus on um, landscape overhauls to reduce water use in, in landscapes. Um, in Windsor, there's a, there's a kind of bill neutral pay as you save program, on bill program that's being piloted for water efficiency. Um, and then again, a number of, of energy programs enable. Uh, consumers to, to finance uh, water efficiency as part of their overall projects.
0: Great. Uh, okay, so the next question comes from James, uh, who is wondering how the transfer of funds to contractors is handled for, uh, for typical on-bill programs.
2: Yeah, good question. Um, uh, so, not something we explicitly asked, asked about, but um, in general, um uh, a lot of programs seek to enable uh, consumers not to have to kind of get funding from the program and then and then write a check to the contractor so effectively they, they enable con- uh, consumers just to, to kind of sign a form and then and then contractors get paid directly by the financial institution or or uh, program administrator so um, we most programs that, that we see uh, enable consumers to, to, to opt for one or the other and, and for program administrators out there I think oftentimes kind of um, that choice is a valuable one in terms of streamlining the process for contractors to get paid and, and paid in a timely way
0: excellent uh okay so the next uh, the next question comes from ellen uh who's wondering if you have uh data on the default or the difference in default rates uh between line item billing loan with disconnection and on bill tariff
2: yeah so I think this one, again, kind of because there are a lot of caveats with this data, um, uh, what we generally found is that all of these programs, so across all these structures, they all have really low default rates. So none of the default rates were, um, or differences in default rates, were significant enough um, that I think based on the quality of data we have, you could make any kind of high-confidence um, assertions about line item billing performing better than than terrorists performing better than you know or tariffs performing better than line item billing, um, you know we hopefully will continue to get really strong data out of all these programs. But I you know I, I do think that one of the kind of key takeaways is that um, just repaying on the utility bill seems to be um, quite positive. And then there's a bunch of variance in these program structures um, that beyond these four program design considerations may may account for. Uh, you know, a half percent difference one way or another. Um, but again, you know, everybody being under or 3% or lower, that is a really, um, powerful result, I think.
0: Great. Uh, okay. So there's a question we've had from, from a few, uh, a few listeners, including Greg, um, who was wondering, uh, he says, it sounds like some programs follow the customer in terms of debt, whereas others stay at the meter. Uh, were you able to see any differences in success or default rates and what key considerations arise between the two sorts of structures? Yeah, so
2: these are all great questions, and, and um, you know, I think unfortunately it's kind of the same answer, which is to say um, they kind of follow the meter thing, which is which is in some sense the tariff structure. Um, the programs in general are too young for us to say much with with high confidence about um, about tariff performance in, in particular um, there are also questions frankly about um, whether the tariff structure will actually survive we haven't seen any tariffs kind of go through bankruptcies um, or go through foreclosures to know whether they're going to serve whether they're going to be upheld in a court of law so I think there are kind of um, foundational questions about the value that still need to be resolved and then the data really doesn't support us making um, a, a kind of enough there isn't enough data out there for us to, to kind of make detailed conclusions about whether line-end billing outperforms loans or tariffs outperform line-end billing. Um, so unfortunately, we're the, the limits of the data um, kind of have us in a, in a place of making some general conclusions um, about on bill performance to date, uh, but not being able to tease out um, kind of how specific program design elements might um, impact kind of overall default trends. But we, what we can say is that, Um, Those program design elements may matter a a whole bunch for other things, which is to say program participation um, and or your ability to recruit private capital.
0: Great. Uh, Okay, so Leo asks um, whether there are any anecdotes where terminating service uh, because someone didn't repay a loan led to bad PR for the utility. Uh, The example he gives is that a utility led a... uh, a grandma to believe her bill would go down with the investment it goes up she can't pay it back and then the utility cuts yeah. off the electricity
2: yeah um <laughs> so I, you know i think in general we have seen we've seen a real diversity of utility um interactions with these with these kind of regulatory processes and, and legislative processes in some cases um utilities have pushed a gr- very very aggressively. Um, not to include disconnection and not to include the tariff for that exact reason. right? They don't, they don't, they're not looking for other reasons to um, shut off power to, to their kind of consumer base. Um, in other cases, utilities have been far more enthusiastic, seeing um, potential value over the long run uh, in kind of operating or, or um, funding these programs. So I would say we've seen a diversity of views from, from utility executives and, and, and utilities um, that really reflect some of that risk. I think one of the kind of challenges of uh, or, or risks of build neutrality is, is just the one you're alluding to, which is if we're telling people they're kind of they're going to save enough money to pay for this thing, um, and then you know there's we're not sure about the, the performance. There's variance in the performance, so average performance is really strong, but variance can be high. Um, Doesn't raise a set of risks that we kind of don't want to be held to, right? And and oftentimes what we see is that people invest in efficiency for lots of reasons beyond just Um, incremental cost savings, right? My daughter's bedroom is cold at night, um, or it'll have reputational value, um, or um, a a kind of range of other motivations.
0: Great. Uh, Okay, so James asks, um, uh, he says, debt to income is an underwriting factor, but what about loan to value of the property? Uh, Is this factor being used in any programs or being considered? Uh, Yeah, it's a
2: good question. You know, I, I, um, I don't, it'd be great James if you, if you just followed up by email. I, um, off the top of my head, don't recall. Um, I think most of it, I believe Alliant Energy did include them. Um, but most of the kind of volume that we've seen in in non-residential has been, um, has been through relatively kind of small business programs where, where I don't think that they typically did that. I know in California, um, that's not something that's typically taken into consideration. So, um, some of it is just um, trying to kind of facilitate a smooth, streamlined uh, on-bill program, and some of the challenges that that LTV can can bring in terms of um, in terms of requiring documentation and, and complex uh, underwriting processes. But if you follow up, I'll I'll try to give you a finer uh, a finer point on that answer.
0: All right, the next question is from Cal who is uh, wondering um, how the default performance of on-bill repayments uh, compares to other energy efficiency financing programs.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So <laughs> one of the challenges here is that um, knowing what the comparable is to compare these programs to is challenging. So um, when, I, when I talk about kind of outperformance what I typically am looking, and I think I use it as an example in this in this webcast, is at least in the residential sector, you know, we, we have a good sense there's a, there's a healthy kind of portfolio of um, of consumer loan products, both that are that are used to finance efficiency and they're used for all sorts of um, other purposes, and so um, that is kind of some of the you know there, there's this, a data challenge, but but we do have decent pools of data. Um, we meaning nationally, I think the, the audience, the kind of folks on the phone and, and others have access to this data, um, which suggests that uh, consumer default rates tend to be substantially higher. Consumer loan product default rates tend to be substantially higher than those that we see, at least for the residential um, sector for, for uh, the, the data set that we that we have here. Um, but, yes, it, it is definitely a challenge, and we include a nice caveat in the report around that um, to sort out of kind of what is the appropriate Comparable for that, and I think um, just to give you a sense with with pace, financing, I think we see um, similar trends, uh, if not slightly better. But again, those are really long-term financial products, um, and none of the programs uh, have been through a a full loan cycle or or assessment cycle, Um, so it's tough to make too many conclusions about which of these products will perform better through time. I should note that that performance, again, I you know I know folks are really focused on default rates, and, and I think that's appropriate. Um, but other pieces matter too, right, and, and consumer adoption at the end of the day is key here. So so thinking about kind of bringing the right capital sources and program designs uh, to bear to drive consumer adoption um, really should remain paramount.
0: Great. So uh, the next question is from Anand who asks um, whether you've run into issues where an electric utility um, has required bill neutrality where a where gas energy efficiency savings are significant, or vice versa, now you see these cross, sort of cross utility savings being handled.
2: Yeah, um, it's definitely been problematic for a few programs. So I can think to um, Illinois, where we've done a case study in the residential space there, um, where utilities have chosen, utilities were effectively given some latitude to, um, to kind of define cost effectiveness um, in in kind of ways that align with their programs and and um, and and really the, they were only allowed to count credits for um, end uses that they were um, that they were providing, and so there have been real challenges in, in, in identifying cost-effective measures across a number of utilities in that program because of the fact that they can't, you know, they can't count um, gas savings or they can't count electric savings. Uh, in other programs, like in California, um, they, they're working on effective. They, they effectively put a regulatory fix in place, which is to say in some cases um, you have you have dual fuel utilities, not a problem. In other cases, where you don't. Um, they effectively said, whoever's getting more savings, you know, you get credit for everything and, and um, you kind of uh, either allocate it by utility or, or um, whoever's getting kind of more savings uh, covers the cost and gets the benefit.
0: Great. Okay. Uh, so the next question comes from Patty, um, who says, you mentioned low market penetration rates. Uh, how is the market defined here? And is it possible that the potential market is being consistently overstated?
2: Um, it's quite possible. So, so we asked program administrators to, de- to define it, and, and we basically made it based on eligible populations. So um, I think the point you raise is a good one, which is to say that you know there's some portion of the stock that's either uh, quite efficient already um, or just not appropriate for these types of improvements uh, that we are, we are really including in some sense in, um, in this data set, right? So, so we're looking at kind of overall, number of small, this is a, kind of a gross cut, right? So overall, um, set a, a number of small business customers and number that you've served. Um, so I think you could you could probably level a, a reasonable um, um, kind of or, or put in place a reasonable caveat a, a, about those numbers. But, again, that's really what we typically see um, used across a number of efficiency strategies. So um, I'm not sure that it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. Uh, I guess kind of. Uh, when we compare kind of market penetration in these in these programs to, to market penetration elsewhere.
0: Great. Okay, the next question uh, comes from Tim, um, who's wondering if there are cost-effective suppliers out there that are able to help utilities avoid the large SAP upgrade costs uh, to allow us to save, uh, to offer on-bill.
2: Uh, not sure I captured that question, but I think you're asking whether there are third-party partners that can help utilities operate these.
0: Yeah, that's right. Is
2: that right?
0: Yeah, that's that's right. Oh,
2: okay. Um, yes, there there are lots. Um, so I think we we see everything from um, programs fully outsourcing um, the, uh, in some sense, the entire program to third parties to um, to. Program administrators or utilities relying on um, on third parties for a for a smaller set of functions. So in New York, for example, they use a a um, financial institution um, to effectively underwrite, um, originate, and, and service on bill products. Um, in Illinois, it's more of a um, a third party kind of um, program in a box operation in some sense, which is to say a third party is is operating um, uh, almost the entire program. I think similar models envisioned for Hawaii Um, and then for some of these open market programs like that being envisioned in Connecticut and in California um, I think you see a more active role for um, public or or, um, quasi public entities partnering with private entities to to deliver these programs right which is that a a bunch of market organizing infrastructure is is necessary um, often in the form of a master servicer Um, And and these kind of public entities are are contracting with with private entities to to carry out a discrete set of functions.
0: Great. So uh, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Uh, The next one comes from Nicholas, who uh, was asking about bill neutrality and wondering uh, over what time period uh, that's typically defined.
2: Yep, there are two two ways in which um, we see programs doing it. So, so the less restrictive way is over the lifetime of the improvements, and the more restrictive way is over the lifetime of the financial product. So, in California, uh, they use financial product, and other programs they use uh, over the lifetime of the improvements. Um, it can be a, a, a real restriction, but um, we see we see both of those um, kind of rules in play in different parts of the, the country.
0: Great. So, uh, I think we have time for one more question. Um, so both Tim and Brian have asked about, um, sort of the legal considerations, uh, of on bill financing programs. Um, yeah. who is the current lead authority on the legal and accounting and tax positions? Uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> your, your private counsel, I think is probably the best, uh, <laughs> the best answer I can give. We, we try to surface the range of issues. Um, I, I would say that, um, Philip Henderson at, at NRDC is a is a real thought leader on some of this. Brad Coppathorn at, at uh, the Environmental Defense Fund also has um, so, some kind of strong thoughts on this. So we, what we try to do in the report is is to highlight um, the range of issues and considerations, um, and to give you a sense of, of what the status is. What what is our what do we know and what don't we know? Um, but ultimately, you're going to have to rely on um, a, a broader set of experts and and time and and kind of um, your own legal counsel to, to kind of resolve, um, you know, whether the risks and opportunities are, are worth it.
0: Great. Well, uh, thank you, Mark, for another fantastic webinar. Uh, do you have any sort of final thoughts?
2: No, this was great. Thanks everybody for, for tuning in. And, and again, um, feel free to, to reach out. You've got um, all of our emails at LBL. Um, at the end of this note, and I would encourage you, if, if uh, you do have questions, to, to email all three of us in, in, in the note um, just to make sure that we get to you in a, in a timely way. But uh, thanks, everybody, for joining, and we'll look forward to, to seeing you all again next week.
0: Great. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, I'd like to uh, remind everyone again that today's talk is available, uh, as is uh, the C Action uh, Network paper. Um, they're both available online. Uh, you can go to the Yale Center for Business and the Environment website to access today's presentation, uh, and uh, I'd ask you all to keep an eye out for an invitation shortly for the next webinar uh, in this series, which will be on June eleventh. Uh, so this is Michael from Michael Puckett from the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, saying so long from New Haven, Connecticut.